Well, we've been talking about the theme over the last number of weeks on grace and blessings. And because we've been talking on the theme of grace and blessings, I thought I'd share um, a message from out of the Gospel of John. And you'll find that in the Gospel of John, he puts a focus on Jesus, the Son of God. In fact, in John chapter 20, verse 31, he talks about the purpose of why he's writing. And he says, but these things are written. I'm writing these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's life, abundant, life eternal, life abundant. And so the focus of John's gospel is on Jesus, the Son of God. It's different to the other, other gospels. Now, when we think of Matthew's gospel, Matthew begins with Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Um, but when you go to Luke, Luke's gospel, he begins with Jesus, the son of Adam. He goes back further and he says, talks about Jesus, puts the focus on Jesus, the son of Adam. In other words, the focus on his humanity as the saviour of the world. But when you go to John's gospel, he goes all the way back to the very beginning. He says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. And God was the Word. And because that's his focus on the Son of God, you find that the themes that flow from that purpose include the themes of God's grace and his glory. Fills the page. In fact, it's John that says, We beheld his glory and it was full of grace and truth. So these themes of God's glory and his grace and truth and life are filled in the page. Uh, you find in the pages of John's gospel, that overflows in John's gospel of grace and blessing. And um, the other thing I notice about John's gospel is that he writes in a pattern of three sevens. I don't know whether you've ever realised that, but there is a pattern of three sevens. So, for example, you find that there are seven witnesses. He identifies in his gospel seven people who are prepared to say and testify that Jesus is the, the Christ, the Son of God. And begins with uh, John the Baptist. The last of the seven is John himself, John the Apostle. But then there's also there's Thomas and there's Nathaniel and there's Peter and there's Martha. And of course, there's Jesus himself. Or testifying that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And of course, in the Old Testament, it says, By the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every fact be established. But John goes beyond two or three witnesses and he gives us a complete set of seven people who are prepared to testify and witness to the, to the glory and the grace and the power and the anointing manifest in the life of Jesus Christ. Seven witnesses. But also we find in John's gospel, he identifies seven miracles, just seven miracles. And these are quite notable miracles. In fact, he doesn't just call them miracles, he calls them signs. Now, generally, not every, not every sign is a miracle. Not every miracle is a sign. But in John's gospel, every single miracle is not just a miracle. It is also a sign. And a sign points out the way. True? Like when you're driving down the road. I mean, these days when we drive down the road, we're using GPS or Google Maps. But for me, it's always a comfort to see a sign on the road that points out the way of where you want to go. So that's what John is doing. He's put down the seven witnesses, but there's now seven signs, seven miracles that point out the way, that point out the truth and the life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. These signs point out the glory that Jesus is, the Son of God. And you find that in these miracles, in these signs, it points out the glory and the grace. All these miracles are filled with the grace, the blessings of God. 
And we could go through it very quickly. You know, one, one of those miracles is where the disciples decide to, to get into a boat and row across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. They want to get to Capernaum. It comes just after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And it says that the disciples go down to the shore and they get in the boat and they start rowing out. The only thing is they leave Jesus behind. I think that was their first mistake. They left Jesus on the shore and they went out by themselves rowing to get to the other side. It was already late at night or getting late. It was getting dark. So they didn't have that much time to get to the other side of Capernaum. And the only thing is as they began to row out and as they get out along the shore, there's a storm that comes. And the storm comes and fights and, and uh, the waves begin to crash over the boat. And the harder they row and they're straight. And they're, of course, some of these disciples, some of them are fishermen. I mean, they're experienced so that they know their way around the boat. But even these disciples are getting concerned now. The harder they work, the more they strain. I mean, they're straining their backs. Their muscles begin to ache. They're getting exhausted now because they're fighting against the storm, fighting against the waves. And I think there's also a fear and concern that the waves might overcome the boat and sink that boat in the midst of the sea. I was at the prayer meeting on Friday morning. How many know the prayer meeting is the best place to get a revelation? And during the prayer meeting, we went through Psalm 139. And Psalm 130 is the psalm where David talks about the presence of God. And wherever he is, God's presence is there. And there's a verse in Psalm 139 that says that even in the midst of the sea, your presence is there. In the midst of the sea, your hand will lead me and uphold me. In the midst of the sea. Here the disciples there in the midst of the sea. All their efforts and their strength and their works gets them to the middle of the sea but no further. They can't get any further. And then, of course, they see Jesus walking on the water. Now, obviously, they took the very last boat. They didn't even leave Jesus a boat. And so, but, you know, the thing is that nothing's going to stop Jesus to get to the point of your need. Whether there's a boat or no boat, nothing's going to stop God's presence and Jesus coming to meet you at the point of your needs. And so they invite Jesus, the presence of Jesus, they invite him into the boat. And, of course, the miracle is, you know, they took all their effort to get to the middle of the sea. They invite Jesus into the boat, and John's account is immediately the boat appears on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It appears at Capernaum. I mean, here they invite the presence of Jesus onto the boat, and it's like the grace of God lifts up that boat and either transports it or translates it, but in a moment's time, it arrives at the place of Capernaum on the other side of the sea. That's grace, isn't it? All the work got them to the middle of the sea. But, it was at the, but you know, in their efforts, it only got to the point where it looked like they were going to sink. But then the presence of God comes. Jesus steps in the boat and grace takes them. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of a church. You know, this is a church that believes in, in inviting the presence of God and the presence of Jesus. Because we believe that the grace of God is lifting us up and transporting us and translating us to the place where God wants us to be. It's not just about our strength, but it's about his grace. And so every one of these miracles, they're signs, they speak of the glory and the grace. But of course, there's also seven statements. So seven witnesses. This is a pattern of seven, three sevens. There's seven witnesses. There are seven miracles, but also there's seven statements, I am statements that Jesus makes. So, for example, Jesus says that uh, I am the good shepherd. I'm the way, the truth, and the light. He says, I am the vine. I'm the door. 
He says, I am the bread of life. In fact, when he says, I am the bread of life, it's in the context of him feeding the 5,000. He feeds 5,000 or five loaves, a couple of sardines, a crowd of 5,000. In the context of that miracle, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger again. Those who believe in me, they'll never thirst again. What a statement. Again, the grace of God. There's another miracle, one of the seven miracles, where Jesus heals the blind man, the man who was blind from birth, a remarkable miracle that takes place in Jerusalem. And in the context of that, that miracle, that sign, Jesus stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. Those who come to me, they'll not walk in darkness. And of course, there's another miracle there which we'll turn to in chapter 11. And it's the, the last of the seven signs, the seven miracles. And of course, it's the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And in the context of that miracle, Jesus stands up and says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, although he dies, yet shall he live again. True? Chapter 11. But you see this pattern of three sevens. When I think of John's gospel, I think of these three sevens, the seven witnesses, seven statements, and the, and the seven miracles, the seven signs. And um, I was with, um, this last week, I was a meeting with a business person. And it was a Chinese business person. And um, he was sharing with me how they're trying to grow the turnover of the business. And in fact, their, their longer-term plan is to be able to list this company on the stock exchange, go public. So you need a certain turnover in order to go public. And uh, anyway, so he was talking about his plans and all the rest of it, Chinese men. And I noticed that his car, the, the, the number plate on his car, he had the initials of the business, and then they had 666. <laughs> and uh, so I said, um, in the course of the conversation, I said, well, what does six mean in, in your Chinese culture? I mean, does that mean good fortune? And, but it turns out that eight is really the number of good fortune in Chinese culture, but six is still a very positive number in Chinese culture. Apparently, according to my business friend, Chinese business friend is explaining all this to me while I go around with the car with 666 on it, is that six actually means, um, it means something like smooth sailing. Now, if you have a number 666, it means like you'll never have any problems at all. You know? <laughs> and if, in Australian language, you say, she'll be right, 666, she'll be right. Smooth sailing, six, you know, no problems at all. And so I was, I was sharing to him that uh, in, in our Western Christian culture, Six has a different meaning. The meaning of six in our culture, in, in Scripture, is, of course, it's the number of man. And I had to explain to him that in the creation story, in Genesis, in the creation story, like he's hearing this for the first time, in the creation story, that God makes man is on the, on the sixth day. So six is always the measure of man. But I said, but God completes everything on the seventh day. Seventh day is the day of rest. So for us, seven is a great number because it means completion, fulfillment, perfection. It's entering into the rest. It's the completion. And he sat back. I could see the penny drop sort of thing. He said, that's why you've got seven days in a week. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's why we've got seven days a week. <laughs> so seven, but the thing is, you know, the number of men is six, but he falls short of completion, doesn't he? Yeah. Perfection. It takes, it takes us to enter into that Sabbath, Sabbath rest, which is Jesus. It takes us to to the grace of God to bring us in that place of fulfilment. It's not enough to be six. So, of course, John talks about th six in Revelation, three sixes. But in John's gospel, it's all about three sevens. Seven, 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 Jesus Christ, 
the son of the living God. And so, so the message here, that's my introduction, but uh, the message will probably be shorter than the introduction, don't worry. The message is sign, statement and witness. And I want to turn to chapter 11 and just explore a little about one of these signs. In chapter 11, we see one of the signs, the raising of Lazarus, but it's not just the, the sign, the miracle in chapter 11, but it's also the statement that Jesus makes, that I am the resurrection and the life. But not only that, we find that in chapter 11, Martha also becomes one of the, the witness, the one who bears witness, who declares that Jesus is the Son of God. So here we see the coming together of a sign, a statement, and the witness. And it begins on verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Here we are. And uh, it says there, and it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And therefore the sisters sent to him, in other words, they sent a messenger to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Lazarus is sick. He's not well. And it says there in verse 4, when Jesus had heard that, he heard it. When he had heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death. But again, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, just the first point I want to make here, I'm looking from the context of grace, the picture of grace. The first thing I notice about grace here is that grace listens. Grace does ignore the issue. It doesn't avoid the issue. It doesn't interrupt. Grace is, Jesus heard what, what the messenger here had to say, that Lazarus was sick. He sat and he listened and he heard it. But not only does grace listen to our needs, you know, when we pray, when we confess, the cry of our heart, grace hears that cry of our heart, our prayers. But not only this, I notice here that Jesus here, not only does he hear the, the cry of the human heart, the need, but he also hears the response from heaven. He hears the reply that comes out of heaven because he says here that this is not unto death but for the glory of God. And I believe you now grace has the ability, when we're walking in grace, grace has the ability not only to listen to the needs of those around about us. Grace doesn't ignore it, it doesn't avoid it. But late, grace has the ears to hear the needs, but not only does grace listen to the, the needs of those around about us, grace also has the ability to hear the response from heaven. And the response from heaven was simply that this is not going to end in death. This is not the... This isn't the finish of the matter. This isn't going to end in despair and disappointment, the disillusionment. But this is for glory, God's glory. I believe, you know, when we come to that place of grace, we allow the grace of God manifest in our lives. Not only will we'll be able to be receptive and hear to the needs of those around about us, but we'll also be able to hear the reply and the answer, the power that comes from heaven. The answer, you know, the world is looking for the glory of God. It needs to see the grace and the glory of God. And it'll come as we learn to listen, not only to the needs of those around us, but to be able to listen to heaven and the reply that comes from Jesus heard the reply that came from heaven. And he said, this isn't unto death, but for the glory of God. And then it says, therefore the sisters, verse 5 I should say, from now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And it says there, so when he heard that he was sick, Jesus stayed there two more days in the place where he was. Now where he was was near the Jordan River with John the Baptist. It's about a day's travel from Bethany, where he was. And the interesting thing is, he says here, 
that uh, Jesus waited after he heard the news that Lazarus was sick. He then waits two days before taking another day's journey back to Bethany. Now, I was thinking that's a very strange thing to do because if I was the paramedic and I knew that Lazarus was desperately sick, I wouldn't have wasted any time. I would have gone straight to Bethany. I think it would have been a lot better if Jesus had have left straight away and got to Bethany while Lazarus' heart was still beating. At least get to Bethany before they've wrapped him up in grave clothes and put him in the tomb. It would have made things a lot simpler. But I notice here that, um, you know, Jesus, he waited two days and then it was a day's journey. But by the time they got to Bethany, Lazarus was already in the tomb four days. You know, if you do the sums, you realise that by the time that Jesus, by the time the messenger spent the day from Bethany to get to Jesus, telling the news that Lazarus was sick, I think there's every chance that Lazarus was already gone. I think Jesus knew that. Waiting two days wasn't going to make any difference to Lazarus. He was already gone. But where it was going to make a difference, see, Jesus knew that there was, there was Mary and there was Martha and there was a grieving family and a grieving community, but he also knew it was a community that needed an encounter with the grace and the glory and the power of God. He knew there was, there, was a, there was a region of Judea who needed to have their faith grounded in the power and the demonstration of God. See, grace had a different vision. See, I find here that grace knew the right time to take the journey. Grace acts in the right time. Not only does grace here, but grace, you know, I find about Jesus, he was never in a hurry, but he was never late. He accomplished so much, but he was never in a hurry and he never arrived late. And it makes me think that he knew something of the grace, the grace of God, which, is, which not only hears the need, but also knows the time to act. So he makes a journey. But it's interesting, it says there that uh, he turned to the disciples, verse 7, then after this he, after the two days, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judah again, verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you and you are going there again. Now, they had just been to Judea. In fact, the reason why they are out at Jordan is because they escaped from Judea because they were going to stone Jesus. See, the thing is, when you go to the north in Galilee, the crowds are very friendly. They're very welcoming. You can speak and minister to the crowds in, Jude- in Galilee and they're polite to listen. They want to listen. They want to receive. But in John's gospel, the focus is more on what happens in the south. And the people in the south are very different. They take the law seriously in the south. They're very devout in the south. You just can't teach to those in the south. They always want to debate. They want to argue. And if, and if they don't like what you're saying, then they've got a habit of trying to stone you. And so the last time they were in Judea, they tried to stone Jesus and I think the disciples were worried for themselves. The only thing is that Lazarus in Bethany was not far from Jerusalem. You've got to go back to Judea. So Jesus turned to the disciples and says, let's go back to Judea. And they say, you've got to be joking. I mean, we just came from there and they tried to kill us. But I want to say this, not only does grace listen, not only grace knows the right time, 
But I believe this, that grace is prepared to take a risk. Now, I love the words in, uh, in verse 16. It says, Then Thomas, who is called the twin, this is Tommy the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. I mean, Thomas is one of those people, when you look at the, the glass with water, you know, some think it's half full and half empty. I think Thomas is the sort of person that thinks it's half empty. But I want you to see here, for the disciples, in order to see the glory of God, they had to take a risk. In order for Jesus to demonstrate the glory of God and the grace of God, he had to take a risk. I believe that our city is looking for a demonstration of the glory and the grace of God, but somebody's going to have to take a risk. Grace takes a risk, listens, knows when to respond, prepared to take a risk. We're halfway there. They get to Bethany. And uh, from verse 20, it says, Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, just outside of Bethany, she went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. So this is Martha. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if... Now this is the New King James Version. But if you've got the New King James Version, as we have up on that screen, it says, Lord, if... If you had been here, my brother would not have died. So this, this is the language of regret, isn't it? Lord, if. Now, so many times we live with the confession, Lord, Lord, if only. If only you'd been here. If only things had been different. If only I had not have said that. If only I had written, hadn't signed off on that paper. If only it had been a different day. If only it had been a different moment. If only, you know, sometimes we live in a world of regret. And I notice here, Martha, there was a sense of regret. She was saying, Lord, if only. But then in verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. In verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus didn't argue with that point. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live again. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe me? Do you believe this? And listen now to what Martha says. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe. Again, the New King James. Circle that. Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's come into the world. In fact, Martha is the very first woman in the gospel story that makes uh, the statement, the declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. She's the first. But I want, I want you to see here that grace has come and has encouraged faith. Because at first, Martha's been saying, Lord, if only. Lord, if you'd been here. She's speaking the words of regret. But after Jesus has encouraged her faith, she's now changed her confession. She's changed her perspective. And the confession of her mouth is now, Lord, I believe. It's no longer Lord, if. It's Lord, I believe. I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe the power and the glory of God rests upon you, that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. I believe. You know what? I believe this, that grace, grace encourages us in our faith, in our belief. And what I love about this is that Martha, she had to make that confession before she saw the sign. There was no miracle up until now. Lazarus was still lying, still in that tomb. She had to make the confession. She had to believe. She had to put her faith in action, make the confession, declare who Jesus was even before she saw the sign and the miracle. And that's not how it always happens. I know 
in, in, uh, later on in John's Gospel, when it comes to Thomas, Thomas makes the confession. My Lord and my God. But of course, Thomas's confession comes after all the miracles have taken place. Thomas says, I'm not going to believe until I can see the, where Jesus put the nails in your hand and put the spear in the side. And no sooner than he said that, than Jesus appeared. And John fell down and said, my Lord and my God. But it was after the miracles and after the sign. But Martha made a confession before the sign and the miracle took place. And sometimes I believe we've got to make that confession. We've got to change our confession from regret to faith sometimes before we see that miracle and God's grace manifest. Go on. I also find here that then Jesus goes to the tomb and he sees Mary and she's weeping. She sees the crowds weeping. Verse 34, and he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, it simply says, Jesus wept. Now, verse 35 is actually the shortest verse in all of Scripture. Jesus wept. Now, see here, grace, the grace of God is acquainted with our grief. Now, I find grace not only rejoices with those who rejoice, but grace also weeps with those who weep. I find the presence of God isn't just on the top of the mountain, but the presence of God you'll also find going through the valley, the shadow of death. In the lowest moment. Here was the, the time of brokenness in their lives. And here's Jesus. And he's weeping. He's, he's acquainted with our griefs. Now that's Psalm 139. And David was saying, Even if I go down to the depths of hell itself, there I'll find your presence. It doesn't matter where we are, whether on the heights or at the depths. Whether we're going through good times or challenging times there we'll find the presence of God. Not only is the presence of God understands our grief, he feels our pain. He's there with us. But grace feels, grace weeps. But finally, my last point is this. We find that grace also overcomes. Jesus stands before that tomb and he says, roll back that stone. And there's a protest. They said, Lord, he's been there four days. I imagine that Mary and Martha, knowing Mary and Martha, I'm sure that they filled that tomb with every fragrance and every perfume they had. I imagine they would have taken those grave clothes and they would have soaked those grave clothes in every perfume and the, and the fragrance and, and, and tried to, to you know, keep that fragrance over Lazarus as they laid him in the grave. But after four days, even that fragrance and that perfume wasn't going to make any difference. Jesus said, roll back that stone. And as it says that he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And of course, Lazarus gets up and comes forth, wrapped up in those grave clothes. And Jesus said, loose him and set him free. Grace overcomes. Another way of saying this, when you look at chapter 11, is that love love listens. Here's the need. Love waits. Love always takes a risk. Love believes, love feels, ultimately love overcomes and love conquers. God's grace will conquer. Amen. I know what you're going through today, but I want to say God's grace overcomes. Love conquers. His grace, his glory overcomes today. Now the reality is we live in a world, a world filled of sin and death. You know, we we may not realise sometimes, but there are people around about that we work with. There are 
There are towns and communities of parts of our city wrapped in grave clothes, lying in a tomb, waiting for a church to stand up, prepared to take a risk, prepared to believe, prepared to listen and feel the pain, prepared to hear the response from heaven and is prepared to stand up and say, grace, grace, open up that tomb, roll that stone back and let the dead come out alive. Amen. That's where God's calling us, his grace, grace and blessings. Gospel John, how we stand, finishing a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you today for your great grace. Thank you today that your grace has overcome. Whatever the challenge is today, people where they might be struggling, families might be struggling, Lord, I thank you that today you meet us at the point of our need. You feel our pain. But Lord, we thank you, God. Today we believe we turn our confession to a confession of faith. We say you are the Son of God. You're the, the anointed one. Lord, that your power and your strength and your grace is sufficient for us today. In Jesus' name. Lord, I speak, Father, the power to overcome over every person and over every life in Jesus' name. Come, let's just finish off with a word of song. song you know i believe god's saying lift up our eyes where our help comes from you know if you've been going through some challenges and need a touch today if you need to you know so many times we go through challenges and we're working and we put all our efforts you know i think of the of the man at um, the pool of bethesda one of those miracles and he makes his way every day he makes his way to the edge of the water of the pool because the tradition is, is when the water is disturbed, there's a miracle, there's, there's a miracle take place because the, the tradition is that an angel comes down and disturbs the water. And the first person who steps in the water is healed. So around the edge of the pool is all these people waiting for healing. And this, this man with this infirmity, year after year, day after day, he makes his way to the very edge of that pool. With all his strength and his might, he makes his way. And he gets to the very edge of his salvation, the very edge of his deliverance, the very edge of his healing. So close, but so far, because he hasn't got the ability, because of his infirmity, to actually get into that water. He needs somebody to lift him into that water. Somebody's got to lift him. I mean, that's a work of grace. Somebody's got to get him into the water. All his strength and all his ability only got him so far. And I, sometimes I feel like that. And I'm sure... Most of us feel like that, that, you know, we can work so hard, drive ourselves, work the overtime, bend our back, the sweat of our brow, doing everything we can in our physical strength, only to find so close but so far. 
just not quite there. We just need somebody to help. You know, it was that man. It was only when he started a conversation with Jesus that he found the grace to stand up. Oh, no. Your best is yet to come.